your Bible, why don't you turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you in a moment here when you get there to stand up, and it should be on the screen as well, and we're just going to read it together, standing. In fact, the, the people, it says, stood and read the scriptures together in this passage, so we're going to practice that, all right? So on the screen, why don't you stand with me, and uh, we'll read it together. We're reading Nehemiah 9, 1 through 3. Nehemiah 9, 1 through 3 says this, read with me. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves, all foreigners, and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worship the Lord their God. You can be seated. There's a lot happening in these first three verses. I mean, we could, we could spend quite a while talking about this idea of them assembling. The significance of them gathering as a, a community, as a group of people committed to Christ, a group of people who want to follow Yahweh, and we could talk about that for quite a while, or we could talk about this idea of wearing earth on their heads. I mean, that's just a cool phrase, I think. That they wore earth on their heads. I mean, these, these people understood that we need to be in a place of humility. We could talk for a while about the significance of a posture of humility, of having our hearts be fallen before God, being really clear in our position before Him. Another idea we could talk about is the significance of them, the text says, separating from the foreigners. I mean, they had been starting to mimic more and more the people around them. They were looking more like, the foreigners, they were beginning to worship like the foreigners. They were doing all these things that began to see them blend in with the culture around as opposed to being a countercultural people set apart for God. But I think the thing that stood out to me the most in this particular passage is this idea of confession. And we're at the part in the story of Nehemiah where we're moving from them building or rebuilding the wall to this place where they're really rebuilding the people. I think confession is one of those key steps in what it looks like to rebuild the people of faith. A confession might be the starting point for rebuilding. Maybe you've uh, been feeling for a while this... um, underlying tension that maybe your relationship with God is not quite all it's supposed to be, or you're kind of feeling this lethargy in your interaction with God, and maybe it comes back to needing to start back at the beginning, to look at this concept of confession. I want to highlight just one idea in this first section, and then one idea in the second section. First idea is this, that confession is communal. Confession is communal. 
So what you see in this text is, first of all, they are confessing their own sins. But they don't stop there. They confess the sins of their fathers. They confess the sins of the nation. We've, we see all throughout the Old Testament this idea that the people of God come and they say, you know what, we need to confess where we are at as a people. A confession is something that is individual, but more than that, it's something that is communal. That the people gathered, and you see it in chapter 8, you see it flowing into chapter 9, that the people gathered to confess. They gathered to come before God and, and kind of state in truth, here's where we're at. I think there's two things that have kind of stood out to me as I've considered this idea of confession being communal. First and foremost, Israel recognized that they weren't just with a group of saints, but they also were about a community of sinners. Here's what I mean. Richard Foster has a quote. It says this, Confession is so difficult a discipline for us, partly because we view the believing community as a fellowship of saints, before we see it as a fellowship of sinners. We come to feel that everyone else has advanced so far into holiness that we are isolated and alone in our sin. We could not bear to reveal our failures and shortcomings to others. We imagine that we are the only ones who have not stepped onto the high road to heaven. Therefore, we hide ourselves from one another and live in veiled lies and hypocrisy. The reason I bring up that quote is there is an illusion at times that we are only among saints. And what begins to happen is this isolation begins to take place. And sin is the cause. It, sin begins to isolate us from one another. It begins to kind of drive a wedge in community. We begin to feel like we're the only ones that struggle with the particular sin that we struggle with. We're the only ones that are wrestling through this temptation and seem to give in. That everyone else has their stuff together, but not us. I don't know if you ever feel that way. You get this idea that, that you're kind of all alone in the game. Just recently, there was uh, this young college student that came, and <clears throat> we sat down, and we were having coffee, and he started to just open up and was saying, man, I, I've been really struggling, and I've had some doubts about faith, and I've been wrestling through some things. And he, he, he shares for a couple minutes kind of this place he was at, and then he, he looks at me, and he, he says, do you ever feel that way? And it was this like longing to just be able to connect with someone else at that place. And I looked at him straight-faced, and I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I... I Honestly, I, what, do you, what do you mean? And then as soon as like, the shock kind of hit him, I went, what do you, yes, yes, I struggle. Yes, I have doubts. Yes, I wonder. You're not alone in this. You're not by yourself. And, the, and there's this feeling sometimes in this community of faith that, that no, you, you're on your own, but the reality is you're not. I mean, this is... A community, whether you want to agree with it or not, this is a community of sinners first. Sinners that God is redeemed. Sinners that God is moving toward greater holiness. But this is a group of people that need to be viewed first and foremost as sinners. That I am that same 
place, that all of us are in that place. I remember this one time where I traveled with this ministry team from the college that I was a part of, and so we went out and we were going from place to place, but before our first ministry assignment, it was the evening before all the students would get there and before all the festivities started, and we sat down, and I remember one of the guys in the group just said, hey, before we start this summer together, let me just tell you kind of where I'm at. And he began to share some struggles, some things that he was wrestling with. And I just remember that the, the spirit in the room, there was like this, this haze that lifted because we all were able to look at one another and go, I struggle too. I'm not alone in this. It's not just me. Together we are a group of people who are moving toward holiness, but we're not there yet. The second thing that kind of stood out as I considered this idea of confession being communal is this, that they realized that their sin affected the community. They realized that their sin affected the community. I mean, your issues, your problems, your sin, your baggage, it doesn't just affect you. I mean, that, that is a hard pill to swallow in our modern individualistic society. In fact, we would say quite the opposite. I mean, you'd hear phrases all the time that say things like, well, it only affects me. I mean, my sin really is just only about me. I'm only hurting myself when I do this. You might hear phrases like, hey, I just needed to do what was right for me. What would make me happy? You hear things like, um, I don't see why anyone else should be concerned with what I do because it's just, just my thing. It doesn't affect anyone else. It only affects me. And I'm sure you could come up with many more phrases that are all absolutely, completely lies because it's not true. But we somehow in our individualistic society feel as if, no, no, it really only affects me. The problem and the reason confession is communal is because your sin, my sin, affects more than just you. And just recently, um, I was having one of those bad days. I'm sure you've had them. It was one of those days where, like, everything, I was just hating life. It's like I was cranky, had a sharp tongue. It just was rude. I was short. I, it's probably my time of the month. I mean, guys have them too, you know. And, I, I mean, just, it was bad. And everything was just, I was just mean. And um, so I was rude to my wife, and I, I treated her poorly, and I just, the way that I interacted with her was not appropriate. I was just short with my kids. I was quick-tempered, and I, I mean, you just listed, and I probably was it that day. Now, there's one of two approaches I could take. I could get to the end of the day and go, well, that was a rough one. But I'm feeling better now, and we'll just pick up tomorrow, and that'll be great. Or I could realize that my actions, my emotions, my feelings, my reactions, all of those things don't just affect me. They affect the community. And so going to my wife and saying, listen, Shannon, I... I was a jerk today. And the way I treated you was disrespectful, it was dishonoring, it wasn't appropriate, and I, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? My actions 
don't just impact me, they impact you as well. Going to my kids and saying, listen, I, I was short with you. I did not treat you well. And I need to say, I'm sorry, and will you forgive me? And the reality is, the things that we do, the things we say, the way we act doesn't just affect us, but affects the community. I started thinking about how often we just we try to be narrow with it. I was talking to a friend this week. He said that he was online and uh, was really tempted to look at some things that were inappropriate. And he said he didn't. He chose not to. But as he was kind of faced with that temptation, he started thinking that you realize if you do this, it will shame you. But more than that, it will shame your wife. He's saying this to himself. It will shame your family. It will shame your kids. It will shame your church. It will shame the business you work for. It will you get the idea. It, it doesn't stop with you. Regardless of what it is, the thing that you're holding on to, the, the issue you've been wrestling with, first understand that it's not just your issue. Lots of people are dealing with those same issues. We're a community that realizes we're not in it alone. But the second thing is that we're a community that realizes that it doesn't just affect us it ripples, that it has effects on others many times that we just don't even know about or that we can't see or that we try to ignore. But the reality is it's still there. So what do we do about it? So if we've realized that we're not in it alone and we realize that it affects others, well, what do we do? I think the first thing you do is real simply just examine and confess. Examine and confess. We're going to give a period of time here as we sing just to have some quiet and to examine our conscience, to examine our heart and to say, God, what areas have I begun to, to stray from what you have asked me to be and to do? And then I think it, the whole idea of confessing being communal takes on many different layers. And for some of you, it might look simply like dealing with stuff and then going and finding someone at some point and saying, you know what, I've realized that my actions have begun to affect you. Or it might mean that, as it talks about in the New Testament on a couple occasions, that before you take communion, we're going to be doing that a little bit later today, before you take it, that you just go, man, we, we need to be in the right place to do that. And so I need to go find that someone. But whatever it is, however it looks for you, I think it, it starts with examining and then it begins to with just starting to confess and going to God with it. And we're going to take a little bit of time to, to give quiet, to sing some songs that maybe are reflective. And then uh, the second half of this text, it's, it's so interesting, it just changes. Verse 5 and then verse 6, it completely flips. And we're going to look at this second half just listened to a large section of the second half of that chapter. 
<clears throat> I would have just read it for you if I had that cool voice. But the dude can read. <laughs> he can read. So the, uh, the whole text takes a big shift. And I just want to point out one other key point in this section. And that is this, that confession is about a relational and glorified God. So not only is confession communal, confession is also about a relational and glorified God. First of all, a relational God. And often when we think of the Old Testament, we tend to think of this God that is vengeful, mean, overbearing, vindictive. Like, it, it, it kind of reminds me, the God of the Old Testament reminds me when I play the board game Operation. Have you ever played that game before? I feel like I'm trying to do the right thing. I reach in to get that bone that's broke or something and needs to be taken out. And one false move and I get zapped. You know? One false move, the nose lights up and I lose. It's over. And, and that's the way we think of God. We tend to think of Him as just waiting and just watching. And as soon as you step out of line, here comes the hand. Or here comes, you know, like all of a sudden something's going wrong in your life and you're like, crap, what did I do wrong? Because certainly God is just bringing judgment at this point. But here what you see in this text is a relational God. You see a God in the Old Testament who is quick to forgive. A God who is demonstrating relationship through action. I mean, it's so fascinating that as you read this prayer, most of it is a history lesson. And it starts going back and recounting the ways of God in which He dealt with them relationally. So you start seeing in verse 9-11 to that, that God helped them escape from Egypt. In verse 12, you see a God that provides them direction with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Verse 15, you see a God that provides food from heaven and water from a rock that gives them their daily sustenance. You find in verse 20, a God that provides for them the Holy Spirit, that guides them, directs them. Verse 21, you see a God who provides for their physical needs all throughout the wilderness wanderings. It's not just about punishment. But it's about Him coming alongside of them and caring for them for those 40 years. You see in verses 22 and 23 this praise of God for His abundant provision. For the fact that He gives them children. Gives them offspring. Verse 25, you see praise for Him bringing them into the promised land. Over and over what you get a picture of is this God that's relational. This God that, that provides and cares and guides and directs. And that is our God. This God in the midst of confession is a God that is a relational God that's quick to forgive, that finds pleasure in forgiveness. Then you also find a glorified God. So confession is about a relational God, but it's also about a glorified God. If you look at verse 6, you start to see a shift. The first five verses are, we acted, we did, we did. And you get to verse 6 and it says, you. 
You alone are God. You. you. And it just, the, the biggest, the most used key word, the rest of the chapter is the word you, in direction to God. You have done these things. You are these things. You, and it just, you, 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 over and over in the text. What is the point? The point is this, that the focus shifted at confession time. It shifted from them and where they were at and what they needed to confess. And it shifted to who He is. That He's a glorified God. That He is awesome. That He's powerful. That He's a provider. So there is that contrast that really stands out in this text. First they recognize, and you heard in the in the passage, that we are a stiff-necked people. We are faithless, but you are faithful. There's a huge contrast between us and Him. But what's so fascinating is that the, the idea is not just to reflect on the fact that we're crappy, that we mess up, that we just can't get it right. The point is, yes, we're stiff-necked at times. And yes, we walk away, we stray, but the contrast is what the beauty is about. That instead of being focused on us, the focus shifts in confession and we begin to go, no, He's a relational God, but He's a glorified God. I mean, in this text alone, you start seeing this, that, that He's a Creator, that He's a sustainer, a covenant maker, that He's faithful, righteous, forgiving, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's a teacher, a conqueror, a food giver, a prayer, uh, an answer of prayers, a prophet sender. He's awesome. The list keeps going. It records attribute and quality and characteristic after another. From verse 6 all the way through verse 37, it's just this grand statement. This incredible prayer saying, God, we are these things, but in contrast, You are so much more. And that's the beauty of confession. That confession is communal. But confession also understands, and we understand in the midst of confession, that God is a relational God, that He's quick to forgive. And verse 17 says that, he, that He's quick to forgive, that He's caring, that he's, that he's faithful in the midst of our being faithless. And that on top of that, He is a glorified God. That He is all of these attributes listed here and more. I know at the end of the book of Psalms, it's one of my favorite books in the Scriptures because it so encompasses the range of emotions. But at the very end of that book, you find chapters 146, 147, 148, 149, 150, and all of them, let me flip there really quick. Start out in just a fascinating way. And it reminded me, this passage so reminded me of it. Verse, or chapter 1 of verse 14, or chapter 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. 147. Praise the Lord. It is good to sing praises to our God. 148. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all you angels. And all you hosts. 149, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. And 150, praise.
Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. I mean, the point of the end of the Psalter is this, that whatever you do, whatever you face in the midst of confession, in the midst of your daily life, all direction should go toward praise. That He is a glorified God. That He's a faithful and awesome God. And so as we wrap up our time here this morning, we're going to take communion. And as you come into communion, hopefully you've already begun to examine. But as you move into it now, come with a posture of understanding that He's a relational God and a glorified God. That as you take the bread and and dip it into the wine, that you are reminded that He is faithful and awesome. And that the very breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine are in remembrance of His goodness to us. The remembrance of the fact that confession is for the people to reflect and remember that He is good and that He is relational and that He's glorified. So we're going to take a few moments to do that now. Let's pray.